Welcome to Marketing Thought Leadership, the podcast that offers insightful discussions on thought-provoking marketing topics. Here's the host of our show, marketing consultant, speaker, author, and educator, and the president of Leverage 2 Market Associates, Linda Popke. Hi, this is Linda Popke, and welcome to our latest episode of Marketing Thought Leadership. We're here today with Bill Sanders, who is the Principal and Managing Director of Roebling Strauss. Bill is a business transformation and process innovation expert. He drives organizations to execute on innovative strategy using their existing strengths and also to unlock their latent potential. He uses a proven and holistic approach to rapidly bridge the gap between strategy and execution by identifying those misalignments between strategy, goals, process, and execution, and then designing elegant solutions that close those gaps, accelerate growth, profitability, and innovation. And he is the author of a new book called From Hierarchy to High Performance. So welcome, Bill. Thank you, Linda. Pleasure to be here. So first, I want to ask you about the book. But first, I want to ask you, what do you mean about bridging the gap between strategy and execution? Uh, It's a great question. What I mean by bridging the gap between strategy and execution is what I see inside a lot of organizations. An idea comes up, an initiative, uh, some sort of innovative process or product or service that they want to to achieve or do or build, and the result doesn't match the initial vision or gets dropped along the way. And so how do you Mm -hmm. close that natural gap between what the vision is, the strategy is, all the way down to the day-to-day execution of making that vision come alive. So do you think it's um, – is that related to the strategy not being understood, or do you think there's actually something that sort of gets stuck between strategy and execution? One of the main things is early alignment. So I think there's four mm-hmm. things that I've that I've found that you have to have if you're going to keep that gap as tight as possible and actually bridge it. And the Uh first one is the alignment. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? What are the risks of not getting this done for the company, for the individual? What are the consequences of making it happen? Budgets, roles, responsibilities, making sure all those things are super clear up front is one of the key four things. Got it. And tell us about the others. Well, the second one is what I call explicit agreement. And that is, who is doing what, for whom, by when? Biggest thing about that is it can't be in a coercive environment. You can't Uh demand things inside an organization. We have to get this out by a certain date. It's what do we have to do to get this out by a certain date? What resources are needed? What budgets are needed? What are the time constraints? Got it. So you just got to make sure that those are clear. The third one is transparent accountability, and I think there's two principles in that that are ultimate, and that is everybody has to have access. It has to be transparent. If things were promised, were they done or were they not done? And the second one is exactly that. It's a binary uh, set of criteria. It's not a percent complete or stoplight charts or any of the other normal project management approaches. It's actually, is this done or is it not done? So it's a yes or no, no grayness. Yes or no. Is it done or no grayness? Yep. 
And you can just, yeah, we don't need to know why. We just need to know if, right? Because if it's not done, then we can start digging in and figuring out why. And that's the fourth one, which is the adaptable execution. Moki the Elder, a Prussian general, said that uh, no battle plan lasts past first contact with the enemy forces. <laughs> and it's the same thing. When we devise a strategy, we know that as you implement that strategy over time, new information is going to become available. You're going to find out that you have a new competitor in the market. You're going to find out that some of the assumptions you made aren't right or some of the resources that you expected aren't there or, you know, people leave the company that had skill sets that you needed to make that happen. And so when those things happen, you, the thing you're looking for most is early warning that something's changed. And so a, knowing that, yes, we have a plan and we have commitments that have been made of who's doing what for whom by when, when those things change, they have to be surfaced quickly. So one of the things you never want to do is shoot the messenger. Right. right. If you shoot the messenger because you got bad news, next time there's bad news, you won't get the bad news. Yeah, there's and no messenger. The faster yeah. you get the bad news, the, the better off you are in closing that gap. Well, I, I think that's important because how often do we see people go off in what looks like a wonderful strategy, and in paper it looks good, and even to the team it looks good, and you keep executing even as things are falling apart around you, the world is changing, but you're executing that strategy, and you're executing it really well. It's just no longer the right strategy, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And this is another thing around initiatives or new products or, you know, projects, if you will, where we've also got the day-to-day -day work of operating the company. Yeah. Right? So how That's does it fit job. into the day-to-day -day operations so that you do not get distracted from, you know, achieving either one? Right, you've got the yep. day job, and you've also got this new initiative or this new strategy that you're deploying. How do those things fit together so that as you're doing the work, uh, you're actually strengthening the ability, the team's ability to get the work done? Got it. That makes sense. Now, all of this is in your new book, right? So why do we call it from hierarchy to high performance? Are you saying that we need to have organizations that are less hierarchical? Or can we work within today's organizations and still get them to perform more effectively? Great question. Actually, all of this is not in the new book. So okay. <laughs> one of the things, that as, as I've gotten down into some of these larger corporations and even smaller ones, and you start trying to make change inside the organization, you, you run into static and entrenched mindsets and uh, calcified processes and procedures, and that's not the way we do it around here. And a lot of those things can be limiting. So that really got me to digging in a couple of years ago into culture. Okay. And the power of culture inside an organization. That led me because I do, uh, I choose one uh, group or nonprofit to work with every couple of years before uh, the previous one was the American Marketing Association, San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And then I joined a group called greatworkcultures.org. Okay. And Great Work Cultures has allowed me to rub shoulders with experts in culture and learn a ton. And so when they decided to publish a book, they asked me to write the first chapter setting up the why, why we need to be focused on all these new things. And so in that, in that chapter, because I'm a co-author, what I talk about is what's changed in the environment, both from a, the corporate environment and the culture at large, particularly in the United States, that has made innovating the way we work just as important as innovating the products and services that we devise. 
And we've had a lot of so, changes, right? Just been an awful lot of changes, of changes in the workplace. Yeah. A lot of changes in the workplace. And so the co-authors of the book take apart different aspects of that and work on the culture. And so one of the issues there is that we have a very hierarchical approach that came initially from the military, mm -hmm. was applied to the corporate, and now when you try to deploy new concepts and new services in our current environment with all this digital transformation, those types of hierarchies tend to back information up, build silos, keep people away from their, you know, keep the decision makers yep. far removed from the actual people using their product and services, how they're using it, why they're using it, what their needs are. And any company that changes their business model to start getting closer to those consumers, mm -hmm. their clients, their customers, ends up having a massive advantage in our current marketplace. You know, and it seems to me that, um, you know, I, I think you're right. We start with this military thing, and we've got this corporate vision of almost like if, if it's not invented here, this is the way we've always done it. But we almost kind of like develop these antibodies, right? You know, it's like you, you try mm -hmm. something new, and the organization says, no, spit that out. That's going to make me unhealthy. So how do you get past that? Uh, and I presume part of it might be generational, that we're getting people who are – coming from this digital generation and they um, they do things differently. They do not have some of the, um, the thoughts in their heads that the generations before did, but without waiting till we get rid of everybody who's there now, <laughs> how do we make some changes in the short term? Well, I think the, the very first thing is to start examining uh, a lot of the beliefs that we bring in because the beliefs are the foundation of behavior and that's what yep. results in the culture of your organization. So, uh, one of my co-authors, Doug Kirkpatrick, uh, is, worked for Morningstar, and he was the sixth employee there. He was hired as the uh, the, the accountant, like the uh -huh. financial guy, for the small tomato company. And they're now the largest tomato paste company in the world. Hmm. There are no jobs. There are no job descriptions. There are no bosses. There is no management. Everyone in the organization is self-managed, and they've been running for over 40 years. Wow. Right. But if because there's no jobs or job descriptions, how do I know whether I'm processing tomato paste or calling on customers or whatever? Exactly. Everybody writes their own level of commitment to the rest of the team, which okay. serves as the job description. They write their own Got commitments. It. They're held account accountable to them by their coworkers, not by a boss. No mm -hmm. single person has the ability to fire anybody else. Interesting. So what happens when you right, have a performer, someone who doesn't come along? Does the group say you're out, or how does that work? Exactly. Okay. Right. The group deals with it. Hmm. And Do you again, think that will he's work the one in, talking about more of the self-management, right? And that right? works for them. Just like it, uh, Gore's technology has a very similar, if you wear anything with Gore-Tex, uh -huh. um, that uh, W.L. Gore and Associates, I'm sorry, not Gore Technology, um, but they have a very similar operation. Right. You write your own contract when you're hired and you come in and you, if you want to decide, in his case, he wanted to get involved in sales. So he got right. involved in sales. He got involved eventually in every part of the organization, not just the financials. Interesting. 
So, you know, an organization like Gore that I'm aware of, um, and there's a number of others we could probably talk about, they've sort of wanted to do things out of the box to start with, right? So they've started out by being different. What do I do when I've got an organization that's, I don't know, 25, 50, 100 years old or more, and there's this established hierarchy? It's almost like things are kind of set in stone. Is there hope for these companies? Um, Absolutely. Okay. Well, and that's where we come back to the bridging that gap between strategy and execution. Okay. What are the tools and behaviors and beliefs that you're reinforcing by the way you're operating things? So one of the things, this no coercion rule, when we're talking about agreement, right. uh, actually comes from uh, Tim Eskew, who was a project manager at Intel. And in the 90s, there was a real hard push um, for 18-month cycles to launch new chipsets. Right. Because the market was demanding a new chipset every 18 months. Well, and we, and we had more glow. It said we had to, you know, we had to double the number of transistors on a chip every 18 months or whatever. It, yeah. Exactly. So you've yep. got this thing going on, and what they they were coming down very hard with high pressure uh, plans to get this done in 18 months, and because nobody had a say in it, none of the engineers had a say in it. They'd look at the top down. And they'd go, sure, whatever, and they'd get to work, and they'd work their yep. normal 40-hour week. And for, you know, a number of months, that was fine, because when you mm-hmm. start reporting on percent complete, anybody's ever been on a project, you know this, right? Right. As a project manager, if I start raising my hand early in the process and saying this is off track, it's my fault as the project manager I get replaced. Right. If I wait long enough, until I'm embedded in the project, then I can raise my hand and say we have a problem because nobody else could take it over now. Right. You've got all these things built in around this. Yep. So what do you do? You get to the first meeting and, yeah, okay, I really haven't started on this thing yet because it's 18 months away. I'm working on this right now, but I have to say something. So, yeah, we're, we're 5% now. Our next meeting is 10% or 12%. <laughs> and it's one of the little rules that we have in, in my world as we talk about this stuff is when you're 90% done, you're, when you're 90% complete, you're halfway there. Right. That last 10% will kill you. Yep. And the last 10% kills you because all of a sudden something that we assumed was going to be in place or that hasn't been checked or, you know, all of a sudden it's not there. And we, oh, we didn't know about this, and so now we've got to push the date out. And you push those dates out too far, and you just you lose the execution. Miss your window. Yep. Exactly. And so what Tim did is exactly the opposite. He put everybody in the room, and he said, okay, I'm not telling you what dates. Here's the quality criteria of what we need as a deliverable. When can you have it done? Oh, interesting. Right? So it and forces people work to with think them, differently. Risk management. Exactly. Forcing people to think differently and then tracking it differently. And what he did is he turned the whole thing upside down for them. They didn't make the 18 months, if I remember correctly, um, uh, from Tim, but they did make it a lot faster than they'd ever made it before Mm. and with very little overrun on the the expense side. I mean, you know, the mythical man month is real, right? Right. You you can't throw – you, you can't throw 18 people at, at something because you need 18 man months for one month. That doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't work. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, exactly. The, the rule is, you know, it takes nine months to have a baby. Right. You can't, you can't have, have one month nine it. times. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. 
so it's fascinating. So tell me about how you got interested. Tell me how you got interested in culture because it's 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 such an interesting. I know. Um, I think it's Peter Drucker says culture eats strategy for lunch, right? So how do you <laughs> right. kind of get into to culture as a as a way to kind of impact change, et cetera? What what kind of brought you to this? Well, uh, first uh, I think was experience. Second was reading Peter Drucker. But <laughs> okay, um, you know. My experience is, is going into operations or organizations and beginning to work with them on something they want to execute or speed up or, you know, get traction on an idea or a strategy that's just not getting traction. When I started looking around at why, it was very frequently, uh, it's very easy usually to find out whether it was mostly people yep. or processes, yep. rules. And then there's that in between of where I'm not really sure what this is, right? And it's it's a, a corporate mindset of that culture piece that I started digging into and trying to understand a little bit better. How do you, when people aren't used to talking frankly about issues in a company and that culture is kind of shine it on and make it pretty and yes, we will, mm-hmm. and no intention of doing it at all, how do you, deal with that when you're trying to get alignment up front, when you're trying to get the explicit agreement, when you're working to, you know, put transparent accountability on there and people start reacting to that, you have to start digging into why. Yep. And so that's what got me so interested in culture uh, as I started, you know, to really just the practical access, uh, the practical part of just getting things done. But you don't kind of market yourself as a culture expert. Do you think it's wrong to focus on culture and say you're the culture expert or why, you know, are you looking more at a strategy and saying culture is part of it? I'm just curious why you've kind of positioned oh. yourself this way. Well, because I'm not a culture expert. Right? Okay. I'm, I'm in a massive learning curve personally okay. um, where I take this as a, you know, things that I'm learning, I take as a toolbox. What what I do is transform businesses uh, in, from from what they want to actually being able to execute against that. And so I work across kind of a multidisciplinary type approach across leadership, across communication, across marketing, across, you know, how do we, you know, team building. Right. So it sounds like rather than coming in and, and leading with culture, you say, I've got this toolbox and I might need a hammer, I might need a screwdriver, I might need a wrench, but I'm not going to hit you over the head with the hammer just because I have a hammer. Absolutely. And listen, I'm not knocking the culture experts, but most of uh-huh. them come in and do seminars or they do trainings or right. they 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 do two-day off-sites and then that's supposed to change everything. And I'm my experience is while it can, I'll tell you what will change more. Change the way they operate every day. Make sure the tools that they're using are reinforcing the beliefs and the culture that you want that happen. I was talking to someone uh, I won't mention the company name, very large retailer. Mm-hmm. And one of their challenges was have a lot of stores and they have a big e-commerce presence. Well, their big push for several years had been being consumer-centric, customer-focused on everything. Uh-huh. Problem was it, their compensation model didn't match. Uh-huh. Right? So if I bought I bought their product online and I wanted to return it to the store, that was great for me for the consumer because they had made that change. But the salesperson at the store got dinged 
on their bonus because that was returned to that store. Right, even though they had nothing to do with the original sale, yeah. Exactly, and vice versa, right? They could come in and show it. You know, I could come in, I could take a look at the product, decide that's what I wanted, and they wanted me to buy it right then, even if I didn't have any way to get it home. Right. And I'd rather have it delivered. And so they had to go back and change their compensation system because what they were getting was salespeople that were not working on behalf of the customer. Right. Right. And so you have to – those that alignment is not just in how we talk or how we communicate. It's in how every piece of the organization has to align to make sure that the strategy is getting implemented. Excellent. So it makes sense. It really does make sense. So we're talking here with Bill Sanders. Just a part of that. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, Bill is the author of uh, of a book called Hierarchy to High Performance, and he's also um, an expert in bridging the gap between strategy and execution. So, Bill, if you could leave us with um, with one thought as to what we should do to kind of start the process here, because if I see there's this gap, and I know I, I'm not where I want to be, sometimes it can feel just overwhelming. So, where where do you get people to start? Oh, well, uh, what I do, so one of the, the decisions I made early on is I don't respond, to, we don't respond to RFPs, we don't uh, market per se. Uh, mm-hmm. We take time with each uh, potential client to decide whether we're a good match for them. Yep. So, you know, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, the the website is roblingstrauss.com, R-O-E-B-L-I-N-G-S-T-R-A-U-S-S. And... Um, Let's have a conversation. Fantastic. Again, we've been here with Bill Sanders. He is the Principal and Managing Director of Roebling Strauss, a business transformation and process innovation expert. The book is From Hierarchy to High Performance. And, Bill, it's been a pleasure um, having you here. Learned a lot about Thanks, what folks really can and can't it. do. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Until next time, um, thank you for listening to Marketing Thought Leadership. We hope you enjoyed this edition of Marketing Thought Leadership, brought to you by Leverage 2 Market Associates. If you'd like to find out how powerful marketing results can transform your organization, contact us at www.leverage2market.com.